Welcome into the Legal Innovators Series. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Craig Mills, a shareholder at Buchanan Ingersoll and Rooney, and the co-chair of the firm's litigation section. On our show, we talk to some of the leading in-house counsel from across the country to get their insights on the evolving role of general counsel. We'll talk about some of the innovative approaches they've used to solve legal challenges, and we'll find out how they manage both in-house and external resources to create efficiencies and value for their company. And we may have a little fun along the way by accident. Our guest today is John Hall. He's the Vice President and General Counsel of Implus Foot Care, which is a manufacturer of more than a dozen sporting goods and active lifestyle products, including Soft Soul, Air Plus, Trigger Point, and the Perfect line of fitness products. He's been with Implus for five years as its very first General Counsel and has been part of the company's rapid growth and acquisition program over that time. We're very happy to have him on the program. John, welcome. Thanks, Craig. How are you today? Just fine, sir. Just fine. How's the weather in North Carolina? Well, actually, right now, we are in the midst of a massive downpour, so it's not too lovely as it's commonly, more commonly known for down here. So hopefully it'll clear up. Well, we're both indoors anyways. I want to start with a section of the show we call opening statements, where we get to know a little bit more about you and how you came to be the general counsel down there at Implus. But could we start by you just telling us a little bit more about what Implus does? Sure. We are... I. For lack of a better term, I would describe us as a consumer products company. Um, we have over 15 different consumer brands that span um, across several product spectrums. The company primarily started out in the foot care, um, shoe care, um, insole markets. We've since expanded into um, traction devices, uh, especially fitness equipment. Um, recovery equipment, hydration. So it's a um, uh, a rapidly growing company with an expanding product base, to say the least. But I, that, as a general characterization, we're a consumer products company. All right. Now tell us a little bit about your career path and, and what brought you to this rapidly growing sort of multifaceted consumer products company that you're of which you're now the GC. Well, um, I started my career in private practice in um, here down in North Carolina with a couple of uh, mid to large size firms and was in private practice for about seven years. And from there, um, it, it became evident to me fairly early on that um, I, I would likely be more satisfied career-wise in an in-house role. And from private practice, I then transitioned to in-house. Um, I was first with Glaxo Welcome in the pharmaceutical industry for about five years, and I moved from there to be the um, sole counsel for the research and development subsidiary of King Pharmaceuticals and was there for about three and a half years, and my job was relocated to New Jersey, and I declined the invitation to go with it. Um, and more or less kind of started my own, I refer to it as a consulting practice, um, but it was um, equivalent, I guess, to more of a lawyer-on-call type of service that I targeted um, small and startup life science and, and pharmaceutical companies, of which there are a number here in North Carolina, and was actually able to parlay that into a, a five-year um, five stint of being on my own. And from there, I was made aware of the opportunity here at M-Plus by a, um, a law school colleague of mine who happened to be a law firm partner 
with a gentleman who was friends with our CEO who had mentioned to him on occasion that they were um, growing to the extent that they felt like they needed an in-house lawyer and um, threw my name in the hat, and lo and behold, here I am. So you've been in private practice. You've been part of a law department in a large Fortune 200 corporation or Fortune 100 probably. You've been on your own with your own consulting firm, and now you're back in with in private practice as the sole lawyer in the shop. Is that right? Yep. I'd say that pretty much sums up the spectrum. Well, it's, it's a wide range of experience, and I'm sure it's giving you some insights into some of the things we want to talk about because I'd like to switch over now to the segment of the show that we call direct examination, uh, and that's where we get to ask you some targeted questions about specific uh, challenges that face you and, and your company and how you as, as the general counsel have adapted in order to help your company overcome those challenges. One of the things I want to start with is something that you mentioned just at the outset in discussing Implus, which is the fact that you work at a company that has a lot of different consumer brands uh, under one roof. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you face in dealing with that particular situation where you're not just selling one thing, you're selling a lot of different brands to a lot of different markets and, and a very multifaceted type of consumer products company? Sure. Well, I think right off the bat, as I will probably be evident to, to most people, is that with that many different brands, there's going to be a wide range of intellectual property um, from, obviously, patents and trademarks. And... I don't even know actually the number of trademarks that we have both domestically in the U.S. and internationally. I would say it runs into the into the hundreds, and so that's obviously one of the biggest challenges is just managing that, um, making sure that we uh, obviously first and foremost that we don't let anything lapse or fall through the cracks, that we keep annuities paid and registrations current. Um, Along with that, or, or, or dovetailing with that, is obviously enforcing that IP, which I um, feel like will probably be something we'll we'll get into um, a bit more extensively later on. Um, so those are probably the two biggest things initially. Um, then, with each different, because we are not only in different brands, but I would say we're also in different um, in different segments, as I noted. At the outset, we've now branched into um, specialty fitness, um, recovery, hydration, all of which have um, different markets, um, different marketing needs, marketing collateral. Um, the retail structure is is different, so we're dealing with multiple types of vendor agreements that go across all the spectrum of the products and. Although there are a lot of similarities in those, there are a lot of differences that you have to deal with just based on, um, you know, the type of retailer, what their needs are, what their demands are, et cetera. So um, it's, it, it, it makes for an interesting day every day when you come in. I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> so it, um, it's really varied. It's really varied. Well, focusing on the IP for a minute, I'll admit I did some background research on your company, and from what I could see, Implus has over almost 600 marks registered in 20 or 30 countries across the world. With the rise of e-commerce, um, obviously protecting that IP is a huge challenge. What are the, some of the ways that, that you go about in detecting and dealing with threats to all of those marks in all of those different places? Sure. That... Um 
as we as we have expanded, um, obviously, and with the way the, the the marketplace in the U.S. and then throughout the world has evolved, um, it's been very a very rapid evolution. Um, when I first joined the company five years ago, I would say that our our e-commerce presence was was not really uh, at the forefront of of what we were doing and trying to grow the company and, and market the products. And I think that with all of the acquisitions that we've done in the last five years and the the broader array of product categories, we've we've had to change our focus somewhat and start putting more of a focus on the e-commerce. And dovetailing along with that is a, I guess, really a more heightened sensitivity um, and awareness of people that are out there selling either counterfeit product, knockoff product, or that kind of thing. Before, early on when I first joined the company, it was, and, and this is still evolving. We're, we're not at the end game or end point where we, where we probably need to be, but um, when I first joined the company, and still to a large degree today it occurs, is that, you know, one of our distributors on the international front would come across somebody that was, you know, had a website with a, an infringing domain name that had one of our trademarks in it, or they would see um, a product for sale on um, Amazon, eBay, um, Alibaba, that type of thing. And we would, we would, we were more reactionary. You know, we really didn't have a whole lot of bandwidth and are still very, very lean um, in terms of resources to chase this stuff down. But once we were made aware of somebody, we would, you know, pursue them with a cease and desist letter or what have you. And generally, um, for some of the small time offenders out there, and I think what we found a lot of them were small time offenders. Um, that was enough to take care of the problem. But with the proliferation of e-commerce and the expansion of e-commerce, I think, and the fact that we are trying to be more active in that sphere, um, we have developed sort of a heightened sensitivity to um, infringers on our on our trademarks and on our, on our patents, and have become more aggressive in in trying to pursue those. As far as like a prophylactic standpoint, I, we haven't really instituted anything yet. That's something that um, we probably need to look more closely in, in the near future on on doing that and get our heads around exactly what type of preemptive measures we can take to better protect ourselves. So that's that's probably obviously going to be one thing that's on my plate for the coming for the coming year. Well, you spoke about aggressiveness and, and, and being more aggressive in some ways about protecting the marks. And, and obviously, all the, well, no litigation is cheap, and IP litigation, and particularly patent litigation, is among the, the most expensive, whether you're the one that's doing the suing or you're the one that's being sued. How do you go about making recommendations and decisions about what cases to bring, what cases to let alone. Is, is it a matter of how important the mark is to the company? Is it a matter of how large or aggressive or injurious the infringer is? How do you make those kinds of decisions? What are the things you weigh? Well, I think you've hit on probably two of the, of the, the biggest considerations, and that is how, how big is the product that we're talking about that is being infringed and what is – 
or, or what can if we if we can quantify what the, uh, the the economic effect on or detriment on damage on that product is by the, the infringing product. Uh, that's uh, primarily the, the biggest consideration. And, and at the end of the day, it's generally going to be a business decision as to, you know, are we willing to go to the mat and spend X dollars to defend this product if it's only generating X dollars in revenue for us? The the other thing that we have to balance, as you as you noted, and then there's a sort of a spinoff on that is, you know, how large is is the offending company and the, the other thing we have to look at from a, a political standpoint is, um, you know, what is our current relationship or potential relationship with that, you know, with that infringer? Do we um, do we want to go after them, you know, from that standpoint? Because we a lot, a lot oftentimes we find that we have some of our customers are, you know, they may be selling products that are borderline infringing on on some of our products but it's a case where maybe we let a sleeping dog lie because of the political fallout if we actually chose to pick a fight with them if that if that makes sense i don't know if i'm explaining that eloquently enough but those are the primary the primary drivers and we always have to be again cognizant of what you can't predict it as you know what what somebody is going to do or how they're going to react to being challenged. And you have to always, you know, weigh the pros and cons to the expense, the, the drain on company resources. What's the probability that you're going to prevail? What's the probability that, you know, it could be flipped back on you and somebody could try to challenge or invalidate your patent and, um, it, it's it's not a simple decision. There are a lot of different factors that have to go into or taken into consideration in making the ultimate decision as to how to how to pursue it. No, I, I get it. Although I, I hadn't, uh, or at least I think I get it. I hadn't really considered the political aspect, but I I have seen on occasion walking down the the aisles of a supermarket or a big box retailer. There's a store brand that looks awfully close to. A, a, a name brand which is on the shelf next to it, but I guess you don't want to be launching uh, you know, IP suits against one of your larger customers, even if the colors exactly. on their package look just like the colors on your package. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about the acquisitions, because that's another thing that you mentioned sort of leading into uh, the show and about Implus's explosive growth over the, the five years that you've been there, primarily through acquisitions. Uh, you've been part of almost a dozen acquisitions in the last five years, which is a pretty rapid clip. How do you keep up with that many deals? <laughs> um, I don't know that I actually do keep up with that. I just really try to keep my head above water. But, um, yeah, we have done, since I joined the company in January of 2011, we've done nine acquisitions um, wherein we acquired either the assets or Actually, we've done one stock deal um, to acquire different brands and different companies, um, and we've the the company is is a private equity owned company, M Plus, um, and in the time that I've been here, we have twice been sold um, from one private equity firm to another. So, yeah, all total, it's been about a dozen uh, different transactions, and oftentimes some of the the private equity sales have gone on simultaneous to us doing 
an acquisition, which becomes quite a <laughs> quite a juggling act. But um, we we are fortunate in that the company prior to my arriving had built up a relationship with our outside um, our primary transaction firm, which was a legacy holdover from one of our former private equity owners. And they had, I don't even know exactly how many transactions they had done prior to my arriving. I think it may have been two or three. And they they know our business. They know the business model. Um, they've worked with our CEO, our CFO, and with me now for the last five years. And generally when we've done um, – an asset purchase, which is our preferred method. We've used the same APA. It's the same set of disclosure schedules. So we all have familiarity with uh, the, the nuts and bolts and for lack of a better word, legalese of, of the document, um, which makes it a lot smoother. And that's not saying that every deal, I mean, as you know, and every other transactional lawyer out there knows that there's never one that um, that goes off completely smoothly. There's always some issue that comes up either on the business side um, or, you know, something's discovered in diligence or there's some last-minute change or uh, permit or approval or uh, landlord consent or vendor license or consent. But for the most part, we, we, we have it not down to a science is not the correct terminology, but... Um, we're very familiar with the the format and the structure of the transaction, the documents, and so we can usually get through that fairly quickly. And then it's just a matter, of, like I said, of dealing with the the business issues and the other unknowns that that inevitably pop up in a transaction of that type. So you you've been sounds like you've been buying and selling while you were being bought and sold. That that sounds like it could be a little confusing sometimes, but I take it. <laughs> you, so, so template contracts and working with the same outside counsel are some of the things that you put in place to help, you know, keep track of and stay on top of this rapid clip of deals in which you've been involved. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's a good way to characterize it. Again, it's the familiarity, and we we have worked with the same, um, for the most part, the same team of lawyers, um, uh, you know, on each and every deal, and. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of almost like dusting off the the form APA and then plugging in um, the deal specifics and then uh, customizing it for lack of a better term to cover you know some of the other issues because not every deal is alike and there there are uh, variations in each one but it's it's fairly easy to from a papering standpoint to to cover all those and and to handle it. I want to follow up on something you said there because working with obviously the same firm with that in-house knowledge, that institutional knowledge, obviously is very important to you. But I know there are some GCs who like to mix up their uh, assortment of outside counsel and, and even change counsel every once in a while, even if the sure. outside counsel is doing a good job, just to get some fresh ideas, some fresh approaches. How do you weigh those two factors, John, in terms of somebody you know and trust because they've done good work for you before and they know your business as opposed to maybe there's another law firm out there that could do even better or has some, some fresh approaches? Sure. Yeah, I think that's um, uh, that's never been something that's been at, at the front of my the front of my mind or a primary consideration. I've been 
I've been very comfortable with the legacy. And, and before I got here, M-Plus has had a longstanding relationship with a firm that um, our outside counsel that is our go-to for, and, and because of the expertise that the firm has, they can handle just about everything. And although I, being local and being here in North Carolina, I obviously have, um, you know, multiple contacts with different firms here. Um, but I've just never seen or felt like, it, at least for me and for M plus that at this point, there is a whole lot of benefit to trying to, as you say, like trying to get fresh ideas or trying to whittle down hourly rates or what have you at the expense of having to bring somebody back up to speed to the business, deal with the conflicts, checks, deal with all the logistics of just making a change like that. So quite honestly, for that reason, I've never felt inclined to really, uh, you know, dig into that. Um, I've been very satisfied with all the, the firms with whom we work. And it's, I, I have greater peace of mind in knowing that I can make one call to our, our primary contact at, you know, whether it's a transaction or it's um, some of our everyday nuts and bolts issues that I can make one phone call and I can get, I'm going to be directed to somebody with the expertise to handle my question. I mean, a classic example is we just, and this just came in a couple of weeks ago, we have some marketing folks that want to run a contest nationwide for input of designs for um, a line of one of our products. And I have never in my life had to <laughs> address anything like that, although it, it struck me that it was going to be fraught with um, myriads of a myriad of different issues where the, the folks that are coming to me, to them it's a simple enough concept and something that's easy enough to do. And, you know, then I start rattling off, well, here's what we got to look at and, you know, get to about 10 or 12 different things to where their eyes are popping out of their head and their head is spinning. They're thinking, all I'm trying to do is just kill their project. But the, with the relationship we have, I could pick up the phone, and I did pick up the phone, and I was directed to somebody, and we knocked out, you know, contest rules in about two or three days, which if I had to try to shop around for somebody to do that, I might still be trying to nail that down. So I take a lot of – I'm – a, a creature of habit for lack of a better term and anybody that knows me well my friends or whatever will tell you that but um you know i find something that works um then i just generally stick with it i don't if, if it's working and we're getting good quality work and my client my internal clients are happy and i'm satisfied i don't see any need to shake things up well they i've heard that familiarity breeds contempt but it sounds like it also can breed confidence and, and efficiencies at least in in your viewpoint i want to ask you oh, some let me yeah, ask you some absolutely. questions now about some, some challenges that face you individually. We've talked about challenges that face the company, but, but you as, as an attorney in, in your in your day-to-day -day work, you came on to, G, to M Plus as the very first GC they ever had, as the company's growing to the point where they figured, all right, now we need to have our own in-house counsel here every day. What was it like to build a legal department from the ground up in a company that had never had a lawyer in the building before? Um, <laughs> it was um – when I first came aboard, um, I was 
the general counsel. I was the paralegal. I was the administrative assistant. So um, for about the first year and a half, it was a scramble to me just to keep my head above water in that I was trying to do the legal function in terms of, um, you know, negotiating, reviewing documents. And once I did that, then I'd have to turn on my word processing hat and I'm typing them. I'm doing red lines. I'm trying to do all that. I'm trying to keep up with the filing. And um, it was it was pretty tough for the first year and a half. And with all that going on, I really didn't have a whole lot of free time to focus on, you know, quote unquote, building a legal department. I was just trying to get stuff in order to where I could find it again, you know, three days later. Um, and luckily, after about a year and a half of, um, you know, me spending two hours to, to draft or rework a document and then spending the six hours trying to type it, um, I convinced our folks here that it would be well worth the money um, and the resources to have somebody else to do that so that I could actually spend my time on the productive end of the legal function, for me anyway, because I'm not a typist by any stretch. So um, we brought a paralegal on board who had actually worked for me um, at one of my previous stops in the pharma world. And we, primarily her, I have to give her all the credit, was able to bring some semblance of organization and um, structure to what we did in terms of, number one, just keeping track of documents, keeping track of drafts. It was amazing how just little things like establishing a file system, um, trying to establish an electronic database on the computer um, where we can store documents, contracts, where it can all reside, um, how big of a difference that makes. The other thing that, that I immediately tried to do, because literally about a month after I joined the company, we were in a senior management meeting and our CEO came in and announced that the private equity firm that owned us at the time had, sold, had decided that they were going to sell us. So. We were immediately, basically, upon me coming here, were in um, disposition or sale mode, and at the same time, we were had actually started down the path of doing an acquisition. And I discovered that during in, in trying to provide diligence materials and oversee the the diligence for the sale of the company, that you know, in a lot of cases, they would be asking for a contract, and I'd go to try to find it. And all I could find was the first page and the signature page. So is that bad? I'm just I'm just asking. It, it was not a good thing when the you know potential buyers want um, when when they're about to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a company and they really want to know what they're getting. So that quickly was a first lesson to me that one of the things that we had to do is to. And what I told my paralegal that I wanted to do when she came on board is like, we have to be ready because with the cycle of private equity firms, um, inevitably there's going to be another sale down the road. And I wanted to be ready for the next round of diligence in such a way that we could respond more, um, more quickly to diligence requests, produce documents on demand and that kind of thing. And so, um, that was one of the one of the biggest undertakings we did was just try to get everything organized and filed and electronically stored, um, and creating rosters that had lists of all of our contracts, 
um, trying to keep up with expiration dates on a rolling basis because we had I don't hundreds of contracts, sales rep agreements, distributor agreements that were, you know, they were all had different terms and different expirations, and so we had to try to centralize that, and um, and and that was probably the biggest undertaking that we had, and, and we we're still in the process of um, really of building out the the department and the function, and we, we try to do that as we have relatively calm periods of which to do so, which is seems to be few and far between, but we're doing the best we can. Well, you run a lean operation down there, which I think is probably fitting for a, a company that sells a lot of sports and exercise equipment. Um, what are you looking for in terms of how you manage your outside counsel with that same kind of, uh, I guess, efficiency and responsiveness? How do you handle uh, evaluating them in, in their jobs? And in particular, John, let me ask you, are there any red flags that you sometimes see in, in dealing with your outside counsel where it, it, it gives you some unease about uh, whether or not you're getting the services you need? Um, you know, by and large, with our with with the legacy firms like our transaction guys and our our standing I'd say multi-purpose firm that is kind of our go-to um I've, I have been fortunate in that I've not really had I've not had occasion to be concerned that I was that we were not getting value for our spend and you know I get the bills every month I take I look at them um if something seems out of kilter I can I can raise that, and I'm I'm generally there's it's a quick response and a quick resolution. Um, where I've seen some instances that caused me concern has been um, more in like our product liability claims, where we are turning things over, you know, to our insurance carrier, and it just it given that they're paying the bill, um, it it sort of takes the takes a steering wheel out of my hands in terms of really being able to direct the attorneys and, you know, I never see their bills. I don't really know what they're doing other than, you know, when I'm getting requests for information or having to work on discovery responses or whatever that I have had occasion to raise an eyebrow and say, man, it seems like they're really, you know, kind of churning this file a little bit. Um, but by and large, like I said, I've, I've been fortunate in that the relationships that we have when I came on board have have proven to be good ones, and they're ones with which I'm satisfied. So um, I, I haven't had really any concern. But you know, if I did, it would be in the area, like I said, where I've, I've, if someone's not being responsive to me, then I will, um, you know, I've raised that, and I've, it's been few and far between that I've ever really even had to do that in the five years I've been here. So um but yeah, it's responsiveness um, and the relationship between the time spent on a task. Once I get the bill and I start looking back at it, and can remember what the matter was, and you know if it looks like it's out of kilter, I will um, I'll raise that. But by and large, I haven't had to do that on a lot of on many occasions at all. So it's just, I've been very fortunate in that respect. Well, congratulations in that regard. Yeah. And we're getting close to the end of the show now, so I, I want to finish up with uh, a segment that we call In Closing. And in this part of the show, what we do is I ask a series of rapid-fire questions 
and about you and about your personal interests. And your job, if you choose to accept it, is, is to answer as quickly as you can. Now, I know you're from North Carolina, but I'm going to ask you to transport yourself 500 miles to the north and east and pretend you're from North Jersey and answer really fast. Are, are you up for that, John? Yeah, I'll do the best I can, although <laughs> I talk pretty slowly from what everybody tells me. So, All right. First question. If you weren't a lawyer, what would you have done with your life? I would have been Freddie Couples or Jimmy Buffett, but I unfortunately have no musical skills, and I've never been able to get my handicap below four, so I'm a lawyer for now. <laughs> what do you do for fun when you're not a lawyer? What kind of hobbies or outside interests do you have? Um, I used to play a lot of golf. Um, that has been kind of curtailed with my workload. So um play golf when I can and go to the beach, jump on my boat, and chill out when I can. What do you like best about being a lawyer, John? Um, probably the the aspect of drafting, taking the concept, um, whether it be a deal or just a contract, and trying to capture that in a way that if somebody picked up the document that is not a lawyer, they could read it and understand what we're trying to do. How about the thing you like the least about being a lawyer, aside from interview shows like this? <laughs> no, this has been enjoyable. Don't, it's been fine. Um, probably the stress, probably the there, – there's such minutia that you have to deal with, and a lot of times it just seems that um, you're, you're just perpetually dealing with problems. And um, you, can't, you can't always fix what other people have done. So that's, um, that can be frustrating for them and for you. Right, let's, end on, let's end on an upbeat note. Last question. What's your favorite legal movie or TV show? Um, of course, with the, at my age, it would have to be L.A. Law. That was the one that was on like right when I started law school. And I remember watching uh, Coming Home at Night in the summers during the bar exam. That would be the TV show. Probably A Time to Kill would be the movie. Excellent. Uh, the, the granddaddy of, of them all, L.A. Law. Where are they now? John, thanks so much for coming on our show. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Folks, this will wrap up this edition of Legal Innovators, the interview series. Be sure to join us next month for a new episode. Until then, I'm Craig Mills. Thanks for listening.